Good morning, everyone. We're going to get ourselves set up here, so just take a moment. All right. Actually, now that I've got all these helpers, you guys can do this and I'll talk. It's just up in the middle there. So good morning and uh, shalom to you all. All right, the first thing I think I need to do this morning is to teach you a little bit of Hebrew so that you can see today. Can you go as far forward as possible, please? Yeah. All right, very nice. Well done. All right, I'd like you all to say, Shalom Aleichem B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. It's not that hard, okay? All right, so we, we're talking today uh, about Jesus the Messiah, and we're looking at the Passover celebration, and we're also looking at the whole idea of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We've been celebrating that, of course, last week and this weekend that just passed with Easter, also Passover time. And so what happened after the Passover is that, of course, uh, on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And that's why we're here, so we can worship him and praise him and we give thanks to God for what he's done through the Messiah. But when he rose from the dead, <clears throat> there were a few times that he met with his disciples. And when he met with them, he said to them, Shalom Aleichem. So everyone say, Shalom Aleichem. Not Aleichem. Aleichem. You have to clear your throat in the end of that word. All right, Shalom Aleichem. Okay, good. Now turn to the person next to you and without spitting at them, you say, Shalom Aleichem. All right, that's lovely. So I hope that every week now, that's how you will greet one another. <laughs> Shalom Aleichem, my peace I give to you. Beautiful words that the resurrected Messiah said to his disciples. And uh, also what I said before was, B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Everyone say, B'Shem. Yeshua. HaMashiach. Very good. HaMashiach. That's, uh, B'Shem is in the name of Yeshua. Yeshua is Jesus' Hebrew name. That's the name that, he, that the angel gave Mary and said to her, you shall call his name Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua's uh, Hebrew name which means God is salvation. And so I greet you, B'Shem, in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah. So it's great to be able to be here this morning. Thanks for the, the uh, opportunity to come and share with you. Uh, just to let you know a little bit more about uh, myself and the work that we do. Uh, so my name is Lawrence Hirsch, and you can hear already that I'm not from Israel. So I'm not Israeli, I am Jewish. And of course all Jews come from Israel originally, a long time ago, at least 2,000 years ago. We were all there happily until the Romans came and exiled us out of Israel to all parts of the world. And so Jews landed up... Um, uh, all over the world, but primarily uh, today you have Jewish people who come from two main groups. You have the Ashkenazi Jews, who are Eastern European Jews, and that's where my forebears come from, Eastern Europe. And then you have the Sephardic Jews. You have Jews from Spain and North Africa. And uh, so uh, they're the two main sections of the Jewish people today. We all come from Israel originally, but my forebears left Eastern uh, Europe 
the end of the 1800s. Has anyone here seen the movie or watched the play Fiddler on the Roof? Who hasn't? There's a lot of you who hasn't, haven't. Oh, goodness me. That's what you're going to have to do as a church. Do this as a, a little fellowship time, one afternoon, three-hour movie, get your popcorn, and it's an incredible story, wonderful life-giving story of the Jews in Eastern Europe at the end of the 1800s. And uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a true story based on true, true uh, events, of course. At the end of the story, the Jewish people were under persecution once again in Eastern Europe. Pogroms were breaking out against the Jews. And so they were leaving. They had to, they forced to leave. So people were leaving. The end of the story, they're talking about where you're going. And some, of course, many went to America. That was the main destination for many Jews from Eastern Europe. Then there were Jews that uh, went to England, some went to Israel, um, and then uh, a whole lot from Latvia, Lithuania went to South Africa, and that's where my family went to. And my great-grandfather became a, a farmer in South Africa, and that's how 40,000 Jewish people landed up in South Africa. And so there was quite a large Jewish community there at one stage, and then Jewish people again were leaving South Africa in the 70s, 1970s and 1980s. Uh, and many came to Australia. That's when my family came uh, back in the early 80s. And uh, I came to faith in Jesus as the Messiah in the uh, uh, middle of the 1980s. And I was led to the Lord by my brother, Alan, who came to faith in Jesus before me. And then uh, ever since uh, coming to the Lord, well, God did a great miracle for, for, for me and for my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. Uh, Louise was my childhood sweetheart. I met her when I was 15. She was 14. And when I came to Australia, I had to say goodbye to her. But that was all part of God's plan because while I was in Australia, my brother was witnessing to me. And back in South Africa, Louise's brother was witnessing to her. And so we both came to faith at the very same time on the same Sunday night. Without ever having discussed it, the Lord entered into our lives on the same Sunday night, the 24th of March, 1984, back in the day. So uh, ever since then, we've been working as missionaries amongst Jewish people. We worked in South Africa for five years, and then we started this work called Celebrate Messiah in Melbourne in 1995. So we're in our 28th years of ministry, reaching out to Jewish people. And uh, I want to bring greetings to you from the Holy Land, that is the Holy Land of Australia, which is Caulfield. Uh, you might not know, but the Caulfield environment and the kind of the suburbs around Caulfield holds the largest Jewish community in Australia. We have about 75,000 Jewish people in the area and about 45 synagogues. And so uh, it's a prime area for us in our ministry of uh, sharing the gospel with our Jewish people. And we've started also a congregation called Beit HaMashiach, House of the Messiah. And uh, we uh, have services right in the heart of the Jewish community in Melbourne. So uh, that's uh, a little bit about our work. We also have ministry overseas. We work together with our partner ministries in 20 countries around the world. Uh, I'm particularly involved in work in New Zealand and then also in Russia and in Israel and Australia. So uh, those are our particular areas of, uh, of involvement. All right, so let us now uh, continue with the, this presentation that I'm going to share with you called Messiah in the Passover. So we're going to go back in time a little bit. We're going to think about the Last Supper. Remember that the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples was a Passover. And it wasn't by chance that Jesus had a Passover with his disciples 
just before he was going to be crucified. The reason for it is that Jesus was always the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth. It was always God's plan that the Messiah would come and that he would die for us on the cross at the time of Passover. It was part of God's plan of salvation. And so Jesus had this last supper with his disciples, which was what we call a Passover Seder. Seder is a Hebrew word which means order, because Passover follows a very specific order all the way through. And so he was with his disciples on that night of Passover. And we'll see how the story of Passover and also the symbols of the Passover meal speak prophetically about Jesus the Messiah. And so let me read to you from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22. Now Luke is an interesting person because he's possibly the only non-Jewish writer of the Bible. You know that all the other writers of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, were Jews. So back then, even at the time of Jesus and after, soon after the time of Jesus, it was not unusual to be Jewish and to follow Jesus. That was normal. It was unusual to be a Gentile to follow Jesus. That was unheard of until, of course, the gospel started to go to the Gentiles in the book of Acts chapter 10 and also Acts chapter 15. But, of course, all the first followers of Jesus were Jews. And so uh, that's, uh, that was something quite normal back then. But Luke was unusual because we're not sure. We know he was a doctor, but was he a Jewish doctor or a Greek doctor? I'm not sure. One day we're going to tap him on the shoulder in heaven and ask him to clarify. And there's going to be a lot of people wanting to talk to him. So Luke chapter 22 verse 7, he tells us, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And first, uh, verse 13, And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. Now, Passover begins a seven-day festival, which is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And during this time of Passover, in most Jewish homes, we eat nothing that contains any leaven or yeast. Now, this is because in the Bible, in Exodus chapter 12, God told the Israelites that when they have the Passover, they must get rid of all the, the leaven or the yeast out of their, out of their homes. So, this is a very busy time, just before Passover, in most Jewish homes, getting rid of every single speck of leaven, all the breads, the cakes, the cereals, the baking powder, the cookies, and Vegemite, of course, has to be taken out of the house for the time of Passover. And this is the duty of the woman of the house. But if you notice, Jesus sent two male disciples to go ahead of him to prepare for Passover. So if you really think about it, it probably should be the men that are cleaning the house for six weeks prior to Passover. But as you can imagine, none of us like that idea very much. So our rabbis, who are very good at making laws and then finding intriguing ways to get around them, uh, they found a way out of this little problem. And they say the woman has spent the last six weeks cleaning the house, getting ready for Passover, and removing every single speck of leaven. Well, almost every speck. For the mother of the house has hidden some crumbs of bread somewhere in the house, and it's up to the man to discover them. So the night before Passover, the father comes home from work, takes up some unusual-looking cleaning tools, a feather, a wooden spoon, and a white serviette. And he goes on what we call in Hebrew, betikat chametz, betikat chametz. Everyone say the word chametz. That's good. You're using that guttural word. Chametz is leaven. And so the betikat, 
Bedikat chametz is the search for the leaven. Where could those crumbs be? Really could be anywhere in the house, up in the attic perhaps, behind the refrigerator, under a carpet. It could be very difficult to discover those crumbs, but fortunately for him, his wife has been kind enough to hide those crumbs in exactly the same place as she did last year, <laughs> and probably the same as the year before that too. So it's just a bit of role play. The father pretends he doesn't know where the crumbs are, then he finds them and sweeps them up with a feather into the wooden spoon. Because those crumbs represent sin, because leaven in the Bible is often used as a symbol for sin, he doesn't touch them, he just wraps them up with a white serviette. He then takes this bundle of leaven down to the local synagogue, and there in the courtyard of the synagogue is a large bonfire, and all the other men of the congregation gather there with their bundles of leaven, and they throw their bundles into the flames. And then the father returns home and proudly proclaims to his whole family, I have purged my house of all leaven. But just to make sure that his wife hasn't been careless and left some crumbs somewhere, he adds another prayer. May all manner of leaven that I'm neither seen nor removed be considered as null and void and as the dust of the earth. Amen. Now that's quite a rigmarole, isn't it, to get ready for Passover. But that idea of getting rid of leaven is not just an Old Testament idea. It goes all the way from the Old Testament into the New Testament too. The Apostle Paul, now who was he? He was an Orthodox Jew of his day, a rabbi who came to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And he told the Corinthians that before they take of the Lord's Supper, which comes out of the Passover, he said to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, he said, we should keep the feast, not with bread made with yeast, the bread of malice and wickedness, but we should keep the feast with bread made without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. And so just as... The, uh, the Jewish home is prepared for Passover by getting rid of all the leaven. So we, to we are told by Paul that we too must get rid of leaven in our lives, that we might be a new batch of leaven, a new batch of dough, sorry, without leaven. And so we prepare our hearts before the Lord's Supper, lest we take in an unworthy manner. Now, at Passover time, it's a special uh, festival, so the father wears some special ceremonial garments. He wears a white robe which is called a kittel. White in Jewish tradition is a color for royalty. There we go. Now, men also wear the white robe as a sign of purity, but also royalty. The rabbis tell us that, according to tradition, the kings wore white as well as the priests. So a white robe is worn. Now, you've probably noticed that Orthodox Jewish men wear a special covering over their heads as a sign of respect before God. That covering is called a yamuka or kippah, and it's all in white at Passover because the father, like a king and a priest, is going to lead his family through a seder. I said earlier that the word seder means order because Passover follows a very specific order all the way through. That order is found in this book called the Haggadah. Haggadah means the telling. And this book tells the whole story of Passover with lots of pictures, stories from the Bible, added to by Jewish tradition over hundreds of years. This Haggadah tells the story of Passover, the exodus out of Egypt. Notice how we open the book at the front like that, whereas English starts off at the back of the book. Now, Hebrew is older than English. I'm sure we must be right about that. All right, now by the time of Jesus, there was already a primitive version of the Haggadah that was being used to tell the story. So again, imagine Jesus 
with his disciples. The Bible tells us in the, in the Gospels that Jesus reclined at the table with his disciples. Now that's not just because they didn't have chairs. They reclined because it was traditional at Passover to recline. That's why I have some pillows over here just to get the idea of reclining at the table. So everyone, you can recline as well today. Just get, get away with it today at church. You all can recline. So I see some of you are taking advantage of it already. You can lean back, lean on the person next to you. If you don't know them, just introduce yourself first. <laughs> so reclining is because we're free. So at Passover, we recline to remind us we are no longer slaves. Now, the, the, uh, the service begins with the lighting of candles. And this is normally the duty of the woman of the house. I'm afraid my wife, Louise, is not with me today. She's back in Melbourne. So normally the women light the candles. And then a special blessing is pronounced that goes like this. Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kedishanu B'Mitzotav Vetzivanu Lehadlich Neshel Pesach. Now that means, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by His commandments and commanded us to light the Passover candles. Now nowhere in the Bible are we actually commanded to light Passover candles, so it's a tradition. But it is a lovely tradition as the women bring the light into the house. They do that not just for Passover, but all the Jewish festivals, and every Sabbath Eve as well. On Friday evenings, the women light the candles and bring light into the house. I always say to my wife, she is the light of my life, and um, that gets me some extra points. So after the candles are lit, we begin the service. And during the course of the evening, we drink and refill our cups of wine four times. There are four cups. The four cups represent four promises that God made to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 6. The first cup is called the Kiddush cup, or the cup of sanctification. Then there is the cup of plagues. After supper comes the cup of redemption. The fourth cup is the cup of praise. Now when you read the Gospels, once again, you read of our Jesus took the cup of wine at the beginning of the night. It also records that he took the cup after supper. So it records in the Gospels at least two of the four cups of wine at Passover time. The first cup is the cup of sanctification, and we still use a very ancient prayer that was prayed back at the time of Jesus, and it's a prayer that goes like this. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, borei peri hagafen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. And so as you read the Gospels, Jesus blessed the fruit of the vine. Then the service continues, and the youngest person in the home comes and asks the meaning of Passover. He or she recites the traditional four questions. Again, number four comes up. There are four questions that the children ask, <clears throat> and the questions give us an opportunity to tell the story of Passover. In fact, the Bible anticipates the day when our children will come and ask us the meaning of Passover, and it tells us we must explain it to them. So this is how we've basically passed on the story of Passover from generation to generation for thousands of years. Now the first question goes like this. Manishtana ha-layla hazeh mikol halelot. 
Why is this night different from every other night of the year? Now, I've already explained that Passover is a little different. We recline. We don't uh, uh, eat leaven. And so the children ask, why is this night different? And we who know the story of Passover are obligated to respond. And we tell the children, it is because of what the Lord has done for me with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he has redeemed us out of Egypt. Now, Passover tells us not any of God's message of redemption for his people, but God's means of redemption. The redemption of the Israelites was won through the sacrifice of the Passover lambs in Egypt. The Israelites were told to take a spotless lamb, one for each family. They had to take a hyssop plant, much like the parsley, and they had to apply the blood of those Passover lambs to the doorposts of their houses, the top of the door and the two side posts as well. And because of their faith and because of their obedience, the Israelites were saved from the ravages of the 10th plague that was to befall Egypt. What was the 10th plague? The death of the firstborn son. But when the angel of death saw the blood on the doorposts of the houses of Israel, death was forced to pass over those homes. And that's where we get the name Passover from, or in Hebrew, Pesach. You all want to try that word with me? Pesach, a holiday which commemorates a time when the angel of death passed over the houses of Israel because of the blood, the blood of the Passover lamb. Now that was a great act of redemption. But also, as we look back in history, we can see how the death of those lambs in Egypt was a wonderful picture of an even greater redemption that was still to come, the death of another Passover lamb, the Messiah Jesus. For just as none of those bones of those first Passover lambs were broken, so none of Jesus' bones were broken in his death on the cross. And just as the Israelites were told to take the blood of the lamb and paint the doorposts of their houses, so we too who believe in Jesus, we apply the blood of Jesus to our lives through faith. And because of our faith, we too pass over from death into life. We pass over from darkness into the kingdom of light, all because of Jesus, our Passover lamb, who has been sacrificed for us. All right, it's now time for another question. Why on, the, why on this night do we eat only unleavened bread? Now, I've already explained that leaven is a symbol of sin, so we don't eat leavened bread at Passover time, but also we told the, uh, the children it is because of the haste of the Israelites to leave Egypt. We had no time to wait for bread to rise, so we eat unleavened bread. Now one of the items that I have on the table here is this one called a matzah cover. In this cover we have three layers of matzah. Matzah is unleavened bread. Now the father takes out the middle layer, the three layers, each separated by a piece of cloth. He takes out the middle layer of matzah. Very interesting tradition. The middle layer is removed. It is then broken in half. One half is put down, the other half is given a special name. This is called the afikumen. Afikumen. Can you all try to say that word with me? Afikumen. Well done. You all speak Greek. It's the only Greek word found in Passover. So why should there be this unusual Greek word in a Jewish Passover? It's an intriguing question which no one really has a good answer for. But what happens with this afikumen is that it's wrapped up in a white cloth. It is then buried somewhere in the house. Nobody knows normally where the afikumen has been hidden. But later the children have to find the afikumen before the service can be completed. Now the rabbis say that's an ingenious way to keep the children occupied until the end of the night. Passover can take four to five hours to complete and could be three hours before you even eat 
in an Orthodox Jewish home, so it's pretty grueling for kids. But there's this entertainment that's coming later. But we see a much deeper meaning, and I'll explain it later. All right, another two questions. Why on this night we eat only bitter herbs, and why do we dip our vegetables in salt water? Now, let me explain them to you by showing you this plate. This is the Passover plate, or Seder plate. And on this special plate, we place symbolic foods in each one of these compartments. Each one of these foods are pictures for us of redemption, which is the story and the theme of Passover. The first food is called kapas, or greens. We use parsley or lettuce. This green vegetable reminds us of springtime, because Passover is in the spring in Israel. So we eat this parsley dipped into salt water. Salt water represents the tears of life. The reason that we do this is to remind us that life without redemption is a life full of tears. And that, of course, is a reminder of the Israelite slaves in Egypt. Their lives were full of tears. The Bible says that God saw their tears and their oppression and then sent them the Redeemer Moses. The next food that we have is called maror. This is freshly ground horseradish. Or in this case, we have some uh, creamed horseradish, which is a little bit better on the palate. But we are told to eat a tablespoonful of horseradish at Passover time. Tablespoonful of horseradish. Anyone wants to come and try? I used to be able to serve before COVID came along some of the horseradish. But anyhow, if you really have some sinus problems, come and speak to me afterwards. I'll give you some horseradish. What happens when you eat a horseradish is it goes straight to your sinuses and you'll end up crying. And uh, that's, of course, uh, a very good thing at Passover time. The crying, the tears, remind us once again what it's like to be a slave. It's a life full of tears. A life full of tears. All right, the next food I'm going to mention is the apple mixture. And this is called charoset. And we have apple that we add honey, nuts, and cinnamon. And it is sweet, yet it is used to represent the mortar the Israelites used to make bricks for Pharaoh. They had to make together the hay and the clay in order to build the cities for Pharaoh. So we have this mixture that reminds us of that. The next food we have is called chagiga, and it's an egg, but it's not an Easter egg. It is just an egg that we roast at Passover time, and it reminds us of the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem at Passover time. The special temple sacrifice at Passover was called Chagiga. And so we have this egg, and we eat, later on, boiled eggs dipped into salt water. Salt water represents tears, because we are shedding tears over the destruction of the temple. There was the second temple that stood at the time of Jesus. That temple was destroyed by Titus, and the Roman armies in 70 AD. It was completely destroyed, so now we have this egg to remind us of the sacrifices that used to take place. In a very similar way, we have another item, and that is the Zoroah. That's the shank bone of the lamb. Passover is known as the feast of the Passover lamb, because at Passover time, of course, every family was told to, to take a lamb, <coughs> to sacrifice that lamb, one for each family. But today we don't have a temple, as I've just explained, so we can't sacrifice anymore. Jewish people have not made sacrifices for almost 2,000 years. So we have this bone to remind us of the sacrifices that used to take place. So there's a very important question that arises out of those last two elements. If there is no temple, 
if there is no altar on which to make sacrifices, how can we all be forgiven for our sins? For God's law, the Torah, was very clear about this. God said to Moses, I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of its life that makes atonement for one's soul. In other words, without the shedding of the lifeblood of the animal, there's no forgiveness. The whole Bible was, was in fact, uh, centered on that law. That's why there was the sacrificial system. That was the temple system. It was already there at the time of Jesus as well. They were still sacrificing animals for forgiveness of sin. So, if there is now no temple and no place in which to make sacrifices, how can all of us, Jew and Gentile, be forgiven for our sins? Well, 2,000 years ago, there lived a Jewish man called Yochanan Hamatbil. You might remember him better as John the Baptist. As John was baptizing people in the Jordan River, his gaze fell upon another man who was coming down the hill, and John declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. That is how we're forgiven for our sins today, through Jesus the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who came to shed His blood for us so that we would have atonement for our sins. We don't need a temple anymore. We don't need a sacrifice anymore. Jesus is our final sacrifice. Now, of course, Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus, and of course, those of us who are believers, we're only about 3 or 4% of the whole Jewish community worldwide. Many of them would say that since uh, the temple has been destroyed, that there's no more sacrifices, forgiveness of sin comes through repentance, prayer, and good deeds. That's what Judaism still teaches today. These three things have replaced the sacrifices, repentance, prayer, and good deeds. Now, there's nothing wrong with those three things, but I don't believe that that is adequate, biblically speaking, to bring forgiveness. The Bible says there had to be the shedding of blood, which is why the Messiah had to come to give his life as a ransom for our sins. And so uh, this is part of the message, of course, we share with our Jewish people, that forgiveness today can only come through faith in the Messiah. All right, another, two, uh, another cup, should I say. The second cup, the cup of plagues. Now, we have a cup that we fill up with wine, but then at this point, our joy is incomplete. Our joy is uh, saddened by those ten plagues. We don't rejoice over what happened to the Egyptians. The rabbis say we are forbidden to rejoice over the death of any human being. So we don't rejoice that the plagues were, uh, were, were, uh, were judged uh, on the Egyptians. We don't rejoice that the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea. We mourn. And the way we do that is by dropping out a droplet of wine onto a saucer for each one of the ten plagues. So let's see what your Sunday school lessons were like. Can you remember the ten plagues? All right, I'm not going to make you call them out in order, but let's see if you can get at least ten of them, okay? So call out one. Frogs are always first. It's a funny thing. Frogs, okay. Blood. Sorry? Locusts. Gnats. Hail, boils, darkness, getting slow, no, all right, what about that stuff you get in your hair, lice, if you're a farmer you'd remember this one, a cattle farmer in particular, cattle disease, pestilence, and 
the death of the firstborn. Okay, well done. But I think you need to have a look at those verses once again. <laughs> All right, so the ten plagues. Uh, after we talk about the ten plagues, we normally come to eat the meal. But since we're not sharing a meal today, there's going to be lunch afterwards, I hear. That's nice. But uh, in Jewish tradition, we have a, a very uh, full meal at Passover time. And depending on whether you're an Ashkenazi Jew or a Sephardic Jew will also determine the kind of food you eat at Passover time. And uh, just to let you know a little bit more about the work that we do, I do have a newsletter. There's not many of them left out there in the foyer, out in the, uh, the fellowship area at the back. Come and get a newsletter. But we, uh, this one's all about Passover. It's very interesting. also talks about the work that we do in the far east of Russia. Uh, and also the work uh, in Ukraine that's currently going on. We have a lot of work going on in Ukraine, um, reaching out to people who have been displaced by the war in Ukraine. A lot of our workers, uh, even locally, but also in uh, Israel in particular, all come from either Ukraine or Russia. Uh, as uh, God has had his hand upon Russian-speaking Jews for about 25 years, now many of them have come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And so uh, we are working to help uh, with the situation in Ukraine by uh, giving aid to ministries there and congregations there. Also, uh, it'll tell you a little about the work that we do locally as well. So I'd love you to get a newsletter. And it is a free newsletter. So I'm going to ask if, it's, uh, if you'd like to get a newsletter. Could you put your name and address on here? I'm going to pass this around. Can I give that to you? And if you don't mind passing it around, we'd love to send you a newsletter. Uh, we'd like to ask you to pray for the work we do. As I said, uh, we have work in Melbourne in an area that is called the Eruv. And Eruv is a special religious Jewish area. Now, around the Caulfield area and some of the other suburbs, the rabbis have got permission from the councils to erect a cable on the telephone poles that go around this area, 45-kilometer-long cable. It's unbroken cable. The rabbis made a law that if you live inside this unbroken cable, which in the old days would have been a walled city, for instance, if you live inside that area, you have some leniencies for the Sabbath laws. You know that the Sabbath laws in Judaism are very strict. You can't lift heavy objects. You can't walk too far. You have to walk to, to the synagogue. You can't uh, push a pram, for instance. But if you live in this area, you're allowed to push a pram and carry some heavy objects. So all the Orthodox Jews live in this area. And that's why I said it's the largest Jewish community and also why the real estate is so high in that area. But this is where we do our ministry and uh, we have a wonderful center that God blessed us with. We've been worshiping at a, um, at a church that had been run down already in 1998 when we first started in that building. Uh, and in 2020, in the middle of the COVID pandemic, we were able to rebuild the uh, the church and add on a whole new section and we have now what's called the Caulfield Messianic Center as a, a beacon for the Messiah right in the heart of this Jewish area. So please would you pray for us and also pray for the ministry that we do in Russia and in Israel, of course the real Holy Land and um, also in New Zealand. We do a lot of work amongst Israeli backpackers. Now, what is an Israeli backpacker? Well, of course, you've come across all sorts of backpackers from other parts of the world. But Israelis, when they finish the army, which is compulsory in Israel for male and female, once they finish the army, they travel around the world backpacking. 
One of the favorite destinations is New Zealand, and we have ministry there, reaching out to backpackers, but also in Australia. And in Australia, we are building a network of Christians who would like to host Israelis in their home just for a couple of nights. This gives you a great opportunity to show some love and hospitality and uh, engage with uh, young Israelis. It's very fruitful ministry and very enriching. So if you'd like to know more about that, again, fill out your details on that um, clipboard and we'll send you information about how you can become a host. It's one of the most enriching things that we've done as a family. And some people uh, around Australia and around New Zealand have hosted hundreds of Israelis over the years. And um, it's just such a, uh, a very fruitful ministry. Many Israelis have become believers in the Messiah through being hosted by some lovely Christians. So consider that. We'd love to uh, help you to do that. All right, let's continue. Early on, something was broken, buried, and now needs to be brought back. Does anyone remember what that special piece of matzah was called? Afikomen. Yes, somebody got that right. All right, the Afikomen. So the children run around the house, tearing it apart, trying to find the Afikomen. The one who finds it is given a gift for retrieving it. Then the father takes the afikumen and breaks it up into little pieces. Everybody at the table gets a piece of afikumen. This is eaten. And then after that comes the cup after supper, the cup of redemption. Does this look familiar? I hope so. This, I believe, is the origin of our communion service, the broken piece of afikumen, the cup after supper. Now, where else can we find such a clear picture of our Messiah than in this tradition of the afikumen, which is broken, buried, later brought back. I'll explain more of that in a moment. Let's have a look at the matzah. Matzah is unleavened bread, and leaven is a symbol of? Of sin. So the matzah is a symbol for us of a sinless nature, and that speaks to us of the Messiah. The prophet Isaiah said of the Messiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, which was the chapter that brought me to faith in Jesus, Isaiah said of the suffering servant of God, there was no deceit found in his mouth, nor had he done any violence. The Messiah had to be perfect in order to be a sacrifice for others. You know that 2,000 years ago, there were not just three people being executed on uh, crosses in Jerusalem. Many, many people have been executed during that time, during that era by the Romans, all over the empire. But their death made no difference to the world because they were sinners, just like the rest of us. But this one man in Israel 2,000 years ago, Jesus the Messiah, was perfect. His sacrifice made a difference to the world because he was sinless himself, the sinless one of God, the Holy One of God. So we can see that idea presented in the matzah itself. But also, if you look at the matzah, you can see how the matzah is striped and it's also pierced. If you have a look closely, I'm not sure if you can see there's holes in the matzah. Now, this is done for very practical reasons. The striping happens when you bake the matzah, but the piercing also for practical reasons. But for us, as believers in the Messiah, we look at that matzah and we can see how it speaks again of the Messiah. The prophet Isaiah said that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That's from Isaiah chapter 53, written 700 years before Jesus even walked on this earth. Really a wonderful prophecy. We can see that this matzah speaks of the gospel. Jesus, the sinless Messiah, came, 
and took upon himself our sins. He was crushed and pierced for our transgressions, not his own. That's why the Apostle Paul said, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can see that depicted in the matzah. But also remember the three layers of matzah in the cover, the three layers that are separated, yet they're part of the uh, form of a unity within the pouch. Well, the rabbis say that the three layers represent Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Others say the three layers represents the priests, the Levites, and the Israelites. And in fact, on this uh, matzah cover, you can see there are three tags, and they favor this uh, interpretation that the three layers represents the priests, the Levites, and the Israelites. But why do we take out that middle layer, break it, bury it, and let it come back? There's no answer uh, with those explanations. We, however, believe that the three layers represent one God revealed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Why would we take out that middle layer, break it, bury it, and let it come back? Well, because Jesus, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, was taken out, so to speak. He was revealed while the other two persons remain hidden from our view. Why do we take the matzah and wrap it up and bury it? Well, Jesus died on the cross. He was taken off the cross, wrapped up in white linen according to Jewish burial customs, buried in the tomb. But death couldn't hold him down. Early on the third day, he rose from the dead and came back, just like this tradition of the Afikuman, which is retrieved. So we can see from our perspective as believers the symbols of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection within the traditions of Passover. Yet still my people remain blind to Messiah in the Passover. And I ask you, would you pray that God would lift up that veil so that they too may see the Messiah in the Passover. So Jesus took the bread, the unleavened bread, said, this is my body which is given for you. Whenever you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. The new covenant wasn't something that just jumped out of the pages of the New Testament. The new covenant was already prophesied by God through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, 31, where he said, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with them when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, says the Lord, but this is the new covenant I'll make with Israel. I will write my laws in their minds and in their hearts. They shall be my people. I shall be their God. That's the new covenant Jesus came to fulfill. But remember, it was first made to Israel. And the disciples who were, who were reclining around the table with Jesus were all Jews, which is why Paul says the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. But through faith, God has offered this covenant this new covenant to anyone, so that anyone from any tribe, tongue, family, or nation can be part of God's new covenant people through faith in Jesus, and we are all then made one in Him. That's good news, isn't it? And we celebrate that in our communities, and of course, whenever we have the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the fact that we have a new covenant with God, that through faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, and that we are His people. After the cup of redemption comes the fourth cup, the cup of praise. Everyone say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well done. That's not just because I'm going to finish soon. But 
the word hallelujah is Hebrew. So you'll speak Hebrew very well as well. And that means praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I love the way that that word and other words like amen are Hebrew words that are found in every language. Uh, never translated but just used as is. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This is a cup of praise. And during this time of the cup of praise, we sing psalms, psalms 112 to 118. These psalms are prophetic, in fact. And if you think about it, what did Jesus do when he had finished in the upper room with his disciples? It says that he walked to the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you know what they were doing when they were walking? Singing. Singing praises. They were singing psalms, 112 to 118. Wonderful psalms. You can reflect on those, perhaps, at this time. The fourth cup, oh, sorry, we've had the fourth cup, the cup of praise. This is the fifth cup, but it's a cup from which nobody will drink, the cup of Elijah the prophet. In a Jewish home, we leave complete place setting left untouched and a full cup of wine for Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. And at this point of the service, a special prayer is sung, inviting Elijah to come in, to sit down and to bring with him the Messiah. There's a longing in the hearts of Jewish people every year. And in fact, at the end of every Sabbath, the same prayer is uh, sung, inviting Elijah to come and to bring with him the Messiah. The reason for this is that the Hebrew prophet Malachi said that before the coming of Messiah, he must be preceded by the coming of Elijah. Elijah is the forerunner for the Messiah, the one who comes to prepare the way. But I'm afraid that my people have do been doing this ritual for the last 2,000 years in vain. Because when Jesus spoke about the prophet John the Baptist, remember what Jesus said, if you care to accept it, he is the Elijah, the one who was to come. So the forerunner of the Messiah has already come. And the Messiah himself was revealed to Israel 2,000 years ago. And so we can receive him now. To all those who have received him, he has given them the right to become the children of God. But if you know that the Messiah has come, you can't keep that to yourself. You have to tell others. And that's what our heart is at Celebrate Messiah. So let our people know Messiah has come and we can receive him now. He's brought us redemption for our sins and the promise of eternal life. So let's pray and give thanks to God for what he's done for us. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you have done for this wonderful salvation, this wonderful redemption, for the reminder that, Lord, you have demonstrated your love for us that even while we were still sinners, even while we we're still slaves to sin, you sent the Messiah to die for us. Thank you, Lord, for coming. Thank you for giving your life for our ransom. Thank you, Lord, that you did the will of your Father in heaven and gave yourself as a sin bearer for humanity. So we bless you and praise you that you not only gave your life, but we thank and praise God for the resurrection that ensures that the Messiah himself is sitting at the right hand of God in heaven, but also that we too will rise from the dead as uh, believers in the Messiah, and that our sins have been atoned for, and we have the promise of eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for all that we have. Empower us by your Spirit to share this good news with all peoples, and even to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. For this I pray. Hashem, Yeshua HaMashiach, in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. Thank you.